It is. Um, it was. Uh, and since writing, we had other technologies like, um, you know, computers, uh, but even uh, television, even the radio. Uh, and, and people were worried about uh, what the possible uh, cognitive influences of these new technology would be on the next generation. So, and we can even predict that um, possibly new technologies like artificial intelligence will bring about the same question. Indeed. Well, if Plato was worried about the, the fact that writing would eliminate the need to learn and memorize, you don't have to memorize something if you can write it down. And if you need to recall it, you just pick it up and read it off where you've written it down. Well, that, of course, reduces the brain's capacity to memorize and, and the need to learn. And he was quite concerned that somehow or another, even just the act of, of writing uh, would, mm-hmm. would distract our ability to retain information. So you're quite right, Lorenzo. This is thousands of years old. What's the most recent twist on all of this, though, bringing things up a little more to a current level? Sure. Um, I think our perspective um, would bring a sort of new theoretical approach and a more comprehensive uh, view of cognition to help us understand how um, what is exactly the effect that these technologies have on how we do things, how we think about things. And another sort of old, uh, if you want to call it that way, but somewhat proven tested um, theory that we have in psychology um, that dates back to sort of the founding, one of the founding fathers of psychology um, is that uh, thinking is for doing meaning that, uh, you know, cognition um, is in the service of action. Mm -hmm. And a thorough analysis of cognition requires you to also analyze what is it that you're thinking for, right? What what is it that you're trying to achieve? So if one takes into consideration how well we can achieve our goals um, through technology, and also um, naturally we also need to... uh, uh, analyze what the cognitive impact, what the cognitive changes are, which is something we do in the paper. Um, then we actually notice that the the overall effect seems to be positive. Uh, smartphones seem to uh, seem to um, sorry, the word is not coming to my mind. So, but, this, but your point being that smartphones, despite their incredible ability to be the most amazing distraction perhaps we've ever invented for ourselves, uh, it still has it still has positive aspects. Uh, and I'm going back to what you've written uh, in your piece, you and, and, and Spike. Um, despite Socrates' concerns, many of us are still able to commit information to memory when necessary. Technology has simply reduced the need for certain cognitive functions, not our ability to execute them. That was the concern, uh, and and the technology in the case of Socrates, or Plato rather, was the technology was the written word. Uh, Technology obviously has evolved considerably since then, but nonetheless, it's it's still, uh, in terms of the area of concern, it's that function, right? It's it's made things easy, just it hasn't eliminated our ability to make those things work to their maximum capacity for us. Exactly. I think, the, to me, the easiest way to see this is 
um, it almost provides us a choice, right? So it uh, one could argue whether you know we always want this choice, whether sometimes we want to um, sort of detach ourselves from technology, uh, go about doing our daily activities without technology, but we do have the opportunity to do so, and many people do choose to. Um, you know, avoid using their smartphone for a day or, um, you know, when they go on vacation, they turn off their smartphone because they know it can be detrimental for their well-being. That's a very important point to make, Lorenzo. Let me just stop you there because this is something that I I was on vacation, the most recent vacation. Now it's been a while. None of us have been anywhere fun for a while. But last time I was away, I remember um, being away and actually taking my cell phone and locking it in the safe in my hotel room and going around. and, And when you would make a reservation or whatever, people would say, well, can we have your phone number, sir, just in case? And so I'd yeah, here's the hotel front desk and I'm in room such and such. No, sir, we need your cell phone. No, no, no. I'm on vacation from my phone. And they look at you, some of these young people particularly, look at you, Lorenzo, like you just got off the bus from Mars. What do you mean on vacation from your phone? How can you How can you function without your phone? It's, it's a, quite a different reaction and it's generational too, isn't it? It, it is, I think so. I mean, um, I think... With age comes a sort of a deeper understanding of the things that really matter in life. Um, and I think people sort of, you need that kind of understanding to be, uh, to plan better ahead on whether you want to, but it's not just about technology, but whether you want to put yourself in certain situations. Mm-hmm. Right? So, in your case, you know you're going to enjoy your vacation much better. Sure. If your cell phone is not constantly ringing, you're not constantly notified about work or other things, social media. So you turn it off. And for some people, it may be a little harder to do this. So this is uh, one thing that we also point out in the paper um, about self-control. And self-control is not just, you know, in the moment saying, no, I'm not going to check myself right. smartphone. Um, we know that human beings are not very good at doing that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're generally quite impulsive. But it's about planning ahead. So saying, today I'm not going to switch on my smartphone. Mm-hmm. Off-grid day to, today, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it, it's, it's, really, um, it's really about choice. So to, to sort of bring it back to... Uh, your original question. Uh, It's really about choice and and one of the things that sort of, um, one of the assumptions, so to speak, in in, in Plato's quote about Socrates, about also in in the academic research that went into sort of trying to understand if smartphones have a negative effect of cognition, is that uh, these sort of effects could have a long-term uh-huh. effect on our cognitive ability. Host Lorenzo Ciccuti is with us as well from Toronto. Mr. Ciccuti is a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Marketing at the University of Toronto. He is co-author of a piece at theconversation.com this weekend entitled, Your Smartphone is Not Making You Dumber. Digital tech can enhance our cognitive abilities. I suppose, Lorenzo, the, the funny part about this is this fact that this conversation continues to be 
be had. Uh, and there are those who will be, I suppose, eternally skeptical about the intrusion of technology on the human brain to the point where there is uh, uh, some kind of weakness is inevitable. I want to go to what you and, and Spike, your partner, wrote uh, in this article. For example, in a prominent study investigating people's reliance on external forms of memory, participants were less likely to remember pieces of information when they were told this information would be saved on a computer and that they would have access to it. On the other hand, they remembered the information better when they were told it would not be saved. That's a pretty typical human reaction in this century to people with devices, isn't it? That's correct. Um, the reason why they don't remember it is because they don't need to. Right? That's right. Um, because if they uh, they know that it's saved somewhere, then they can free up their memory to remember other things that um, may be more motivationally important for them. Exactly. And so, yeah, and, and, and besides this study, which, by the way, the authors of the studies did not claim that... Um, uh, in, in this case, the title of the study was the Google effect uh, on memory. So the, it, one of the key things is they didn't claim the Internet or Google or uh, digital technology would make our cognition worse. No, not at all. Okay. Uh, what they were proving is uh, we use these devices uh, as sources of what they call transactional memory, mm -hmm. um, which is very similar to how... For example, in a workplace, people may rely on certain colleagues to remind them of certain procedures or sometimes how to use um, Excel. We have that colleague who is really good at Excel. Sure. And uh, we always ask for that help, right? Um, and we use digital technology in a very similar way. Uh, that's uh, the claim that they were making. So let's talk a little bit about long-term, because this is something that you and your colleagues discovered uh, in, uh, in your research, and, and it, it's because this is where the argument uh, comes down to, the, the, where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Because you want, you want to talk about long-term assumptions in terms of the impact of technology on human cognition. And so what have you found? That's right. Um, so... Uh, I, I want to go back a little bit okay. um, just uh, take a small step back. So why it's really critical uh, to us that uh, smartphones or digital technology have a long-term negative effect is because if it's short-term, it could be just an example of this switch switching, right? This uh, choice that we have, we mm -hmm. can rely on digital technology to uh, temporarily make more uh, sort of memory space uh, sure. for ourselves. But if it's a long-term, uh, meaning that if we don't use uh, certain mnemonic abilities, then we lose them, um, then it's a very different story. And, um, I mean, one example um, of this is uh, sort of the worry that Socrates had, uh, meaning that um, if we stop using memory, then we, we don't have memory anymore. Mm -hmm. But as we can see... Use it or lose it being build, the principle, right? The principle exactly is use it or lose it. Right. But nowadays people are still perfectly capable of uh, memorizing things. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, we do not know if uh, people in the past were better uh, at uh, memorizing than we are nowadays. But um, we definitely did not lose that ability. Uh, we wish we would be able to study it, but unfortunately that, that's not possible. 
Now, what it is possible is more longitudinal studies looking at the negative or even positive consequences of using smartphones. Um, and in our research, we did find a couple, but those actually showed that uh, when you look at the long-term effects and you control for uh, things like you know personal characteristics, situational characteristics, um, in one study in particular, they were looking at uh, academic performance, meaning grades, and um, the students, you know, the classes they were taking, they control for those, they control for the type, the kind of students, their averages. Okay. And they actually found that uh, smartphones did not have a negative effect um, on on people's grades. So when we look at the long-term effects, we don't really see uh, negative, a lot of negative impact of smartphones on cognition. And mostly it's these short-term effects which actually seem to show that people rely on digital technology rather than digital technology makes their cognition worse. Ah, so whether, um, and the research is beginning to show and support the fact that you, you disagree with this, this, this notion that smartphones are making us dumber. In fact, you think they have the capability to produce the exact opposite effect long-term, particularly as they become a more effective tool. But what about short-term, Lorenzo? Um, in the short-term, uh, we think there, sort of, there are these two assumptions, right? One uh, being we... Uh, we rely on digital technology and therefore we use less of a internal... If, if we look at memory and we say external memory is what we use uh, technology for and internal memory is when we decide to rely on our own uh, ability to okay. memorize. All right, sure. You see that people use less internal memory, but the reality is it doesn't mean that they do less cognitive work overall. Right? It's just they rely less on their own internal memory. And the other side of this um, is sort of like we we not just um, use technology to simplify our tasks. I mean, smartphones do a lot of that. But when we work through computers, there is a way for us to extend our natural internal, um, uh, you know, cognitive ability. Okay, sure. And there are tasks. Sorry. No, I'm I'm agreeing because with the computer, yeah. the, the enhancement capabilities, of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. There are tasks that actually are not possible uh, by using our so-called naked brain. Mm -hmm. They are only possible if we rely on technology. And the, I mean, it's unfortunate there are not that many daily examples of this, but scientific discovery is actually one of the prime examples of a process that really relies um, on new, new um, technological advancements um, and digital technology being one that really was the springboard of many scientific uh, new discoveries. Sure is, yeah. Um, and if, if, you know, if you want to think about an example, um, in mathematics, I, I don't really uh, do mathematics. So Neither do me, I. <laughs> <laughs> but you have an uh, example but, anyway because you're brave. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I have an example because a lot of my colleagues uh, do this kind of work. So <laughs> I am at least in a pre-COVID um, 
situation where I shared the office with them. We would often talk about this kind of things. Um, and I really miss them, so that's why I included them in the paper. Okay. But the idea is um, sometimes in mathematics you can find an analytical solution. So you can logically deduce um, what the solution to a problem is. Other times this is not possible. And one way to find a solution is to, uh, forgive me the, the, the analogy, but it's sort of to plug in the numbers. Except that sometimes you have to plug in so many numbers that it becomes impossible to do so naturally. Um, you would, you know, it would take people forever, or they're very likely to make mistakes. Right? Sure. But machines can do this very, very easily, very, mm. very quickly, and so, and they call, we call this simulation, right? So, through simulation, it's possible to gauge what the solution to a problem is, and this naturally cannot be done uh, by our naked brain, but it's sort of a combination, right? We have a goal. We want to achieve this goal. We have the capacity to interpret the result, to understand what the solution looks like, and to program the machine to, to give us that output. And, and the machine does sort of the, the other part of computational Exactly. Work. Starting tomorrow, September 13th, proof of COVID-19 vaccination will be required here in BC for people attending certain non-essential social and recreational settings. As of now, this includes spaces like ticketed sporting events, indoor and patio dining and restaurants, fitness centers, weddings, the list goes on and on. Those age 12 and older will be required to show proof of vaccination to enter or take part in many of these activities. With those people aged 12 12 to 17 still considered children in the eyes of the law it falls to parents to consent to their vaccination let's examine how this is handled here in british columbia to walk us through what is bound to be a contentious uh, situation in more than a few families in british columbia it's a pleasure to welcome katia richardson to the program this morning ms richardson is a family lawyer with westside family law here in vancouver in kitsilano katia richardson good morning and welcome. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, Katja, it's really a pleasure to have you. And I've got to tell you, this is going to be controversial stuff. Let me tell you, first of all, about one of the reasons that you're here. It, it, it fell to us to find somebody to talk about this in the wake of a court case in Quebec, of all places. Let me give you the nuts and bolts of the case. It's a 12-year-old boy who wants to be vaccinated so he can play soccer and then go see his grandparents. His mom says, well, let's go get you vaccinated. Dad says no. No, the boy is overweight. He's had a previous allergic reaction to penicillin when he was younger, and uh, this should not go forward. So the case goes to court. The child's pediatrician tells the court. The child's doctor says, no, he doesn't see any contraindication to the vaccine. And in fact, he recommended it to all his younger patients. Uh, So the court finds in favor of the mother. Uh, The father had not uh, convinced the judge the medical condition would stop him from receiving the vaccine they so the order was to go forward and especially given the fact that the young man 12 years old actually wanted to be vaccinated so this if this case is coming up in the province of quebec katya i think it's a pretty safe bet that similar cases are occurring in every legal jurisdiction in this country right now is is that the case here in bc Um, So I don't know of any particular cases that have come before the B.C. courts on this issue yet. 
Um, but I think we could certainly expect that it could become an issue and we may see more reported decisions in BC on this particular issue in the near future. Um, but the decision in Quebec does give us an indication of how the BC courts are likely to resolve it. Yeah, and again, this was a, a, a full trial hearing in which all of the evidence was laid out and everyone had their opportunity to convince the court that uh, one side or the other should be taken. And in lieu or in, in the face of the evidence, the court found in favor of the child in, in this case and his mother. Uh, um, it, were you surprised, first of all, by the fact that it went to court? I doubt that, Katya, but were you surprised by the outcome at all? Um, not surprised that it went to court. You're right about that. Um, all kinds of issues spring up in family law, and you're right that this is definitely a contentious issue. And I think we're going to see more of that, um, especially with the introduction of the vaccine passport um, and possibly in the future extending vaccines to children under 12. Um, I'm also not surprised by the outcome. So courts in BC aren't uh, bound by decisions of other provinces. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Yes, yeah, so they're not bound by other decisions in other provinces. Um, however, they are persuasive, especially with a contentious issue like this, where it may not have come before courts in BC before. They may look to how other jurisdictions have dealt with it, and that could be persuasive in uh, determining how the judge in BC looks at it. So the courts in D.C., the way that they resolve an issue like this is they first have to look to what the legislation or the statutes say say about it. Mm -hmm. And um, in the case of all uh, decisions that impact a child in D.C., what the legislation says is that the paramount consideration is the best interest of the child. So... The, the judge must make a decision that's going to be in that child's best interest. Sure, okay. And that can include uh, things like, does this impact the child's ability to participate in extracurricular activities? Mm-hmm. So that would have to be weighed against any poten- potential health risks associated with having the vaccine. And what we know from decisions that have been made in BC before about other vaccines is that ultimately what the judge has to weigh is whether there are any contraindications that the child might suffer an adverse impact sure, of course. from the vaccine mm-hmm. against the benefits of having the vaccine. Right. So and, just- and in this Quebec case, the the uh, the evidence was presented. The father said, no, the, he's had an adverse reaction when he was little to penicillin and uh, he's overweight. And all of these are contributing factors that should not see him vaccinated. However, that evidence was offset by the child's own doctor who said he did not see, as you say, any contraindications to receive the vaccine. And that, I, I suspect, weighed uh, heavily uh, in terms of the outcome. But I, I'm curious, just from a, a procedural point of view, Katya, is it okay in a British Columbia courtroom in a, in a trial like this to suggest to the judge that, well, you know, it's not BC, but we had this in Quebec a few weeks ago, and this is the way it went. Can that be introduced into a case in BC? 
Yeah, it's something that the ju- uh, that the lawyer for the parent who doesn't want or who does want their child to be vaccinated could point to that decision. Um, however, like I mentioned, it's not binding right, on right. the judge, so they could consider how the court there dealt with it. But because we have different legislation in BC, ultimately the court's going to be consider uh, going to be more concerned in BC with what the Family Law Act has to say about how to deal with these issues and how courts in BC have dealt with vaccination issues in the past. Right. But as a tactic, as a strategy from the lawyer's perspective, Katya, it's perfectly legal to introduce this into the trial as, a, as an element for consideration. They can present it um, as part of the lawyer's argument. Right. Um, certainly, yes. But ultimately, I would say that if a parent is concerned about their child being vaccinated, in order to actually win on that issue, they're going to need to provide medical evidence that their child is likely to suffer an adverse impact mm-hmm. from COVID uh, from the vaccine for COVID nineteen specifically. Right. Katya Richardson is with us from Westside Family Law. Ms. Richardson is a family lawyer, uh, and we're talking about vaccination. And of course, here in British Columbia, Katya, as you well know, uh, effective tomorrow, uh, vaccine passports uh, will be required for admission to uh, non-essential services and events. And over a million people, with the word over the weekend from the government, is 1.1 million British Columbians as of this morning, Katya, and it's only Sunday, have uh, signed on and actually downloaded their app to their phone. So we're getting on side with this, but not all of us. And as I mentioned before the break, Katya, we have, we've had to deal with immunization and vaccine realities in British Columbia for a long time. At school and various groups and activities require certain shots, and that's that. So clearly, with, there must be court precedent in bc where parents have disagreed about vaccinating their children and if so um what are they and what were the findings yes you're right about that there is a history of cases that have been decided on vaccinations in bc and what we tend to find is that the courts do favor uh vaccinations so There are cases, for example, there was a case in 2019 where a father sought an order from the court that his children be vaccinated. So he had two children. Unfortunately, we don't know the ages of the children because that was uh, omitted to protect their identity. But the mother didn't want the children vaccinated against disease that had been eradicated from Canada. So she had a very specific opinion about vaccines. And that was a concern at the time because there had been recent measles outbreaks in Canada and the U.S. So the father was asking for the the ability to have the children vaccinated and to be able to make decisions about his children's immunization. And um, what the court found was that the mother had a history of um, failing to keep her children updated on their vaccine. Oh. And uh, so the, uh, the court favored uh, the father in this case. While awarding custody of the child to the mother, which was, uh, I suppose, the most interesting part of the decision, wasn't it? 
Yes. So um, the court could still find that someone is a good parent and in all other uh, areas of life, the parent makes good decisions for the children. But specifically with the issue of vaccination, they may have some biases towards vaccination, which don't allow them to make decisions that are in the children's best interest. So in that case, they would award um, the ability to make decisions about vaccines to the parent who's better able to make decisions that are in the children's best interest. Interesting stuff. And of course, with the change to the family law here in British Columbia in 2013, that became the paramount point. The whole point of the exercise is everything, literally everything should be determined based on the best interests of the child. So let's talk a little bit about the emotions surrounding this vaccine rollout. And of course, it's another dimension to the rollout tomorrow with the passports being asked for uh, in certain instances. There's a lot of emotions surrounding this, Katya. Not a lot of rational thought necessarily, but a lot of anger and a lot of emotion. And children frequently get caught in the middle of this. So um, are you seeing at your practice more uh, examples of phone calls or emails or people coming to your office at their wits end going, help we need, we got to get this straightened out, and soon. Yes, definitely. We've had some people contact us about this issue, um, or more generally about disagreements on uh, healthcare-related decisions for their children. So um, I think it's important that parents know how to resolve this issue, but I think um, for the, those that are anti-vaxxers or have um, concerns about COVID-19 vaccines, I think that um, unfortunately for them, um, if this were to be brought to court, it's unlikely that it would be resolved in their favor unless mm-hmm. they really could establish that there was evidence the child would have an adverse reaction to the vaccine. Um, and uh, and so the benefits of the vaccine wouldn't outweigh that. Um, we also have to take into consideration what the child wants. Mm-hmm. I was, I was going to ask you about that. How how much uh, weight, in the case of the example that I, we quoted earlier, Katya, about the kid in Quebec, the 12-year-old, uh, whose parents went to court over the vaccine, uh, mom wanted him to get it, dad didn't. The court found in mom's favor because in the, at the trial, the young man, the 12-year-old boy, was allowed to testify and said, yeah, I want to play soccer. I want to go visit my grandparents. I really would like to get this. How much weight does the evidence provided by the child carry in a court case like this? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and it will depend on the particular child that's being dealt with. So um, we see that with uh, generally in family law, when children reach around the age of 12, the court starts giving much more deference to their views. But still, um, that's only one of the considerations sure. that the court has to take in, into mind. Um, but when it comes to medical treatment under the Infants Act, children are actually allowed to consent or withhold consent to medical treatment if they're considered a mature minor. So what that means is their health care provider has to find that the child is mature enough 
to understand the nature of the vaccine and the consequences. And Mm. if they're satisfied that the child is able to do that, then they can actually make the decision for themselves. And we've seen that in other decisions in BC where a child wanted particular forms of medical treatment and um, the, the parents didn't agree. And so the court was faced with having to make a decision about whether to grant the child's wishes. Uh, Katya, we're, we're going to extrapolate into the future, and I don't think very far down the road. Dr. Fauci down there in Washington says that child vaccination for people under 12 for Pfizer and Moderna should both be approved before Christmas. If that is the case and follows suit here in Canada on roughly the same timeline, this school year could see mandatory vaccinations for children. How do you think that's going to play out? Yes. So if it becomes mandatory to have a COVID-19 vaccine in order to attend school, then I think we can see even more so that scale tipping more in favor of uh, vaccinating children where parents disagree. Because, of course, that that no longer just impacts the child's ability to participate in extracurriculars soccer practice and so on Mm -hmm. it actually impacts their ability to attend school and there may be options for children to attend school online if they're not vaccinated but i'm sure as parents know over the past year that's not always the best option for the child Right. So um, you would anticipate, uh, I would imagine, given the fact that you're already seeing an escalating uh, increase in inquiries, in tensions, in emotions already with this vaccine discussion going on in family groups, were this uh, new level of requirement to be imposed, it's safe to say that so uh, the, the level of tension would escalate literally by a quantum leap, wouldn't it? Maybe, maybe. But um, on the other hand, it might actually resolve disputes a little bit more because, um, like I mentioned, we can expect that cases would most likely be resolved a particular way. So whenever we have a strong indication of how cases are likely to be decided if they were before the court, Mm -hmm. Um, it gives parents a better idea of how to guide their behaviors and how to guide their decisions. So it might actually provide more certainty to parents about how the issues would likely be resolved. Okay, and final question to you, Katya. Will will mediation be uh, invaluable in this process or is the tension simply too high? It's just got to go straight to court. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. As family law lawyers, we always advocate for mediation if um, if we think that it's a tool that's going to help the parents. Um, in this case, if it's specifically about COVID-19 vaccine with one parent wanting it and the other parent not, yeah. it's kind of an all or nothing type of situation either the child will be vaccinated or not Mm -hmm. and if a parent is against the vaccine that's probably a pretty held uh pretty strongly held belief so um also there might be a element of urgency there for example if a child's not able to attend school until the issue is resolved then they may want to go to court to get a quicker resolution 
Well, it's going to come down effective tomorrow, so I expect your phones, if they're not already ringing off the hook, Katja, to get even busier in the week ahead. Thank you so much for getting up early on a weekend to do this with us. It's been most informative. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Residential landlords in B.C. will be restricted to a 1.5% rent increase based on the rate of inflation in 2022. That threshold was announced by the province just a few days ago. Rent increases can't take effect until January 1st, and landlords must provide three full months notice of any impending rent increase. This will be the first increase landlords will be allowed to impose on tenants since the government imposed a rent freeze nearly 18 months ago. Here to talk about it this morning is uh, Rob Peterson. Mr. Peterson is a lawyer with TRAC, the Tenant Resource and Advisory Center. Rob Peterson, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us, Rob. I've been looking at some of the charts and typically the rent increase for the past several years has been in the sort of two and a half percent rate. So, um, and of course, we've had the freeze now for 18 months. So it's it's pretty safe to say landlords are going to be a little disappointed by the amount of increase. Uh, I'm, I'm just talking about the landlord's perspective on this rather than the tenants. Would you agree? Uh, that, that certainly might be the case. I think one of the important things to remember about the percentage allowable increase is that it's not a discretionary number that the government sets. Rather, the government says effectively creates a formula that says, in essence, that it's uh, t- t- pegged to the consumer price index uh, rate of inflation. Um, because that in- rate of inflation has only been 1.5% over the last, I think, 12-month period. Right. That is the, the number that they're using. I think that, um, you know, 1.5% because we've had a freeze for the last few years. It's probably good at the end of the day for tenants coming out of, uh, you know, a rent freeze period that was put in place to protect them during, uh, you know, a pandemic crisis that predominantly and disproportionately affected tenants economically. Uh, it's probably good that it, we are starting low, uh, but it just sort of happens to be that way. Yeah. And the government in its press release uh, in, uh, announcing the 1.5% cap, uh, here's a quote, the 2022 maximum allowable rent increase is significantly less than what it would have been prior to changes made by the province. In 2018 that limited rent increases to inflation. That's a close quote on that one. So that's your point as well about inflation. Correct. And I think they're also referring to before the, the, the change, changes brought in by the current government, the formula was a little bit different under the previous government. Uh, it was CPI in the rate of inflation plus, I think, an additional 2%. 2%, that's right. And that 2% was, was taken back. And the gov- current government has then to also change the formula in other ways to allow for other kinds of what are called additional rent increases, uh, where landlords, if they meet certain kinds of criteria, can apply for to, you know, to increase rent for higher uh, than the 1.5%. Right, and that, and I'm looking now at your website, tenants.bc.ca, and there are uh, uh, still, I'm assuming, these rent increase exceptions are still in effect. For example, additional occupants added. If you're in an, in an accommodation at an agreed-to rate, and all of a sudden you're taking in more people, perhaps the landlord has some... Do the, do, is, there, is there a right involved here? Does the landlord have a right to say, look, I rented it to one or perhaps two people, and now there are four of you. This is going to cost you more. So the, in, if the landlord wants to charge a fee for additional occupants, it either it has to be specified in the tenancy agreement. So, um, you know, otherwise, a landlord could sort of say demand any amount of money for any additional occupants. So to sort of 
uh, and make sure the process is fair, the law requires that the landlord specifies in the agreement that, you know, okay, if you get an extra occupant, this is the amount of money your rent will go up. Okay, right. So that it can be, uh, you know, people can know what that number will be. Um, and the other way a landlord can sort of moderate the number of tenants in a, in a rental unit or number of occupants, rather, is uh, a landlord is allowed to issue a one-month notice to end tenancy if there's an unreasonable number of people in the rental unit. Mm-hmm. You know, if there were, you know, six people in a small one-bedroom, you know, that, something like that, that might be something that looks something more unreasonable. But it always depends on the specific circumstances. Yeah, there are the proverbial red flags, aren't there, that beyond which you, you just go, oh, no, that that's definitely on the other side of the line. Rob, let's talk right. a little bit about evictions, because that has certainly mm. come up as a result of the pandemic, and we had a, a freeze on evictions. What's the status of that now in the wake of this uh, rent increase cap announcement? Right. So the, the rent freeze actually only, sorry, the, my, my bad, the eviction freeze only lasted for three months at the beginning of the pandemic. Then there was another brief period until the end of the summer 2020 where landlords still couldn't evict for, uh, for non-payment. And then there was a transition plan uh, put into place where tenants who had rent arrears for the first, from the first three or four months of the pandemic had to be offered a, a chance to pay that money back right. uh, over a longer period that actually expired in July of this year. Um, before they could be evicted. So we are now back to business as usual. But I think one of the things that the, the last year showed us, once the eviction, uh, eviction ban was, uh, was dropped uh, and lambs were allowed to evict again, was that there was a, a great incentive, and we saw it track a number of, a very high number of sort of what looked like meritless evictions. Tenants being evicted for reasons that were very trivial mm-hmm. uh, or weren't supported by the facts. And I think that that really goes to show one of the major drawbacks of our current sort of rent increase control scheme is that it doesn't, there's no kind of control at all between tenancies. So that uh, with a, when a landlord, you know, an unscrupulous landlord sees a, a, a tenancy where a tenant's paying uh, low rent because they've maybe been living there for a long time, they think they can rent it out for more, you know, there is an incentive, a sort of a perverse incentive that the system generates to say, let's see if we can evict this person and get somebody in to pay more rent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, yeah, unfortunately, the last year has been a, a very has highlighted that issue uh, very, very much. Um, there, I think there have been some very good changes brought in by the government to sort of make it harder to evict tenants in certain ways. So, for example, the new rules about rent eviction. Rent evictions, been, yeah, I was going to bring that yeah. up, yeah. Yeah, it's been. It, they are much stronger now. Uh, the landlord has to actually break, start the process at, at the residential tenancy branch. They have to bring or have all their evidence together when they begin. And even if they win, the tenants get the full four months notice from the date of the hearing, which you know never happens with any other kind of eviction notice. And it's usually if they get evicted with another notice, practically get as little as forty eight hours notice that they mm-hmm. have to move out. Um, so you know they're they're strengthening certain ways to evict tenants, but at the same time, you know. Again, those unscrupulous landlords who are just seeking profit above everything else are sort of changing their tactics, and we're seeing different kinds of evictions. So I think quite quite uh, infamously recently, there's a 100-year-old apartment building down in Kitsilano where, that was purchased by uh, an investment firm from Alberta that served two-month notices to end tenancy on all the tenants inside, saying that the close family members of the people who own the investment firm are going to move into these units. And these are people who, you know have millions and millions of dollars in net worth, mm-hmm. some of whom live in multi-million properties in West Vancouver, was very clearly in bad faith. And yet, you know, all those tenants challenged them, and all many were successful, but, you know, some tenants weren't successful and lost their homes. Mm. Um, it, so it's, you know, I think cases like that really illustrate, number one, 
we need to change, I think, our approach to evictions. Um, there are some sort of common sense changes that can be made to make it the eviction process much more fair and ensure that when people are tendencies are ended, it's being ended properly and for good reason. Um, but it also shows that like the current rent increase scheme, you know, need, I think it needs some kind of adjustment to be able to de- uh, you know, deal with this, to cr- remove this incentive to carry out these sort of bad faith evictions. Yeah. Um, or whatever. Rob, uh, often bad faith evictions. I want to call upon your experience here because you were talking about, you know, the the effort that was going to be made on the part of many tenants who were um, literally floored by the pandemic to, and in many cases, their jobs disappeared, evaporated, literally, especially in the service industry. So they were unable to pay their rent. But in order to, uh, to, to square the things off, they were given some time to come up with a formula to cover off those back rent payments and, and get caught up to the point where they should be, uh, assuming by the deadline, even uh, and so what does your experience tell you about people who were behind, who had in good faith tried to negotiate some kind of repayment arrangement? How successful has that been? Yeah, that's a really good question. So on the one hand, it's a little bit difficult in, in BC uh, because of the way evictions work to know exactly how successful it was. So tenants who you know missed payments, tenants who uh, had, had established a repayment plan and then couldn't follow through with it they could be evicted with a 10-day notice to end tenancy. The way a landlord does that is just to serve the notice on the tenant, and then it's the tenant's duty to dispute it or not. Regardless of how it goes, you know, if the tenant loses at the hearing or doesn't dispute it, they have to move out. But they're also, you know, there's no record created of that notice being issued. So we cannot say how many tenants still ended up getting evicted. Oh, okay. Um, that being said, I think that there were, for some tenants, the repayment plan structure made sense. What the what the legislated repayment plan structure was, in essence, was that a tenant could take the money that they had uh, missed in rent for those three months and then effectively spread it out over the course of the next 12 months. Exactly, yeah. So, that it, so it effectively became a temporary one-year rent increase. Um, and the challenge with that, I think, is that if you're a tenant that maybe missed a little bit of rent uh, and you also saw a return to your original income, you know, there was just the situation where that could protect your tenancy. But for tenants who, you know, for maybe for a month or two, couldn't pay any rent, right. and then who saw a sort of stagger or slower return back to their original earning power, those for those tenants, I'm not sure that for those that program actually assisted them to be able to maintain their tenancies for any longer. Mm. Um, because at the same time as the repayment plan would require tenants to start paying again, the uh, temp the rental supplement. Uh, assistance fund that the government was providing to help tenants cover their rent was also taken away. So we really, you know, people, they were really thrown into the pan and sort of see, you know, do you have the money? And this is the, this is the test at this point. Um, and unfortunately, we, we cannot really tell how many people that were affected by that. What? Um, you know, I know I've spoken to some tenants, obviously, who called our, called our information line over the, over the last 12 months for whom it was not successful and some for whom it was, but it's, you know, it's sort of a, a small, small snapshot of, I think, what is a very large and, at the end of the day, mysterious data set. Yeah, and, and just before we take a break here, what has been, uh, over this uh, this period, uh, and people, I'm sure, flooding your uh, information lines and, and, and having uh, all sorts of questions and, and struggles, what has been the, the single most common denominator that people have, where all of the intersections occur? Mm-hmm. I mean... 
obviously the way, the I think the ways it, it has been over the last couple months definitely has to be the pandemic. Uh, it manifests itself in different ways. I think we've seen a ton of increase in general. I think we've seen a twenty-five or thirty percent increase in all calls that we've received. We're a very small organization, so we've been very very busy. I'll bet. Um, the I mean, evictions are still the number one thing we hear about, and the number of evictions we've heard about over the last year has gone up. Again, I think because of there's that increased incentive to try and end a tenancy, but we've also heard of other issues related to COVID-19. I think one of the most common around that has been the landlord's right to access the unit. Um, you know, tenants asking, you know, can I say my landlord has to wear a mask when they come in? Uh, can yes. I prevent, prevent my landlord from doing large open houses for the property that I'm living in that they're trying to sell? And it's that's a really complicated question. And unfortunately, after the first few months, uh, when the law was sort of changed back towards what it normally is, tenants lost a lot of the right to control who can come in and out of their, out of their unit. Uh-huh. And the rules about masks were never weren't really particularly clear. So it's uh, that might be the most. What they, those are probably the two most common things we've heard over the past few months. A pleasure to have our guest, Rob Peterson, from Track, the Tenant Resource and Advisory Center. Mr. Peterson is a lawyer, and we're talking about uh, things that affect renters and landlords in B.C. The lines are open, 280-9898, with the obligatory 604 up front, should you choose to join us. Uh, Rob, we were talking before the break about things that, uh, uh, that most uh, are most common with, with uh, renters, and, and you at, at Track have, have prepared something called Renting It Right in order to especially educate renters, first-time renters, and people new to the game or new to the city especially. Um, Todd, tell us a little bit about Renting It Right. Yeah, it's an interactive course designed in a couple different parts. We're actually adding a new part to it soon um, that uh, sort of takes tenants and uh, people who are interested in tenancy law through the steps of sort of what it means, what, how the law applies to tenancies, you know, there's, there's some practical tips for sort of how to find a rental unit that's appropriate for you and how to enter into a tenancy. Um, and at the end of the day, if you, you go through the different steps, you uh, the tenants click, click through, learn the information, uh, they have to answer sort of quizzes and then finally a test at the end. Uh, and you can get a certificate that shows that you've passed the, the small online course, which can be helpful for tenants who don't have any renting history and want to show the landlords that, that they are applying to rent from, uh, that they know what their obligations will be under the Residential Tenancy Act. That's a great um, idea. Yeah, no, it's definitely something that uh, we were proud of. Uh, I think we've worked on it with the Justice Education Society. Uh, and like I mentioned, there's actually a new module coming out in the next sometime, in the next little while uh, that also promises to give us more information about sort of the dispute resolution process at the residential tenancy branch. The tenants who were, you know, seeing us having to go there uh, have another source resource to sort of prepare themselves for what that process looks like. And uh, as far as uh, the situation right now in Vancouver, a vis-a-vis rent accommodation availability, a year ago now, there was a lot more than there is, I assume, now, Rob, because, of course, a year ago, a lot of those international students who would have shown up to attend classes at local colleges and universities didn't come. Uh, now, this year, we're looking at more in-person uh, classes and that sort of thing. I would assume that's impacted the available rents, uh, rental accommodation reality. Is it quite different this fall from last fall? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. I mean, our organization doesn't sort of collect statistically that, unfortunately. What I can say in terms of what I what I saw um, just when lo- looking at the data over the last 12 months uh, out, of, out, of, out of interest uh, was that, you know, we did see a, a rise in the vacancy rate in Vancouver in, in last year. Um, it was definitely... Uh, very neighborhood by neighborhood basis. So a lot of neighborhoods that didn't see much of an increase, I think downtown and UBC especially saw the highest increase. But while vacancy rates increased, actually the average rent also went up. 
um, which is very interesting. And, you know, the average rent in, in Vancouver goes up every year higher than the uh, rent increase formula number um, in, because there are tenancies constantly being ended, either because a tenant decides to move out sure. uh, tenant, uh, and then the rent after that can be set at any any higher number. There's no 1.5% control on that. So, oh, oh, I see. Um, so if the rent, so suppose now the tenant, just a curiosity question, suppose I get a rent increase of 1.5% and I move out in March. So that mm-hmm. 1.5% on that particular apartment, uh, d- that rent doesn't have to stay constant un- until the end of that. As soon as I uh, end my tenancy, the the yeah. holder of that apartment, the landlord, can set whatever rent rate they want for whoever's next, right? That's exactly correct, yeah. And that can sometimes lead to some kind of weird situations. You know, a lot of people in Vancouver live in sort of roommate scenarios. Yeah. A lot of those roommate scenarios where someone rents a house, only one person might be on the lease. That means if they decide to leave, it may end the agreement for everybody. And then the landlord can say, well, you guys have been living here for four years, but if you want to stay stay here, you have to pay an additional, you know, 100, 200% rent increase than you than you were if if the, they think the market can bear it um so i mean while the while the rent control we have prevents the kind of some of the kind of crazy things we see in other provinces like uh, i think in new brunswick there's been a number of cases where tenants have seen after the pandemic restrictions have listed lifted rather uh you know 200 to 300 percent rent increases yes um we don't see that during tenancies here but rather we see them between tenancies and now we're hearing about, and, and this, this sounds strange, and I needed to ask you about it because we're familiar with the term, however odious, of bidding wars when it comes to purchasing houses, Rob. But now mm. we're hearing about it with respect to trying to find rental accommodation. What do you know about that? Yeah, I mean, it can be very difficult, I think, for tenants to to know. I mean, I think we, the blind bidding process that there is at sort of in selling residential real estate is very problematic, I think, or people find it problematic. I think in renting, it may, it's probably even more so. It's very opaque. Many tenants will just sort of apply to rent from a landlord, sure. and then you hear back or you don't. Right. Um, and, yeah, they, I think landlords probably are shopping around amongst the applicants to sort of see who might be able to pay more. Um, I mean, I certainly know that for, for moderate and low-income tenants, it is, you know, never been more difficult to find housing in in in, Van- in the Lower Mainland. Um, it's such a challenge, and I mean that that leads. It's a knock on effect that leads to so many other tenancy issues. You know, there's so many tenants who uh, are living in situations that they cannot bear. That you know, where the, they have a terrible relationship with the landlord. Um, there's uh, you know bad behavior going on uh, on one side of, from other neighbors mm-hmm. from, from the landlord or property manager and they just cannot leave because they cannot afford to live anywhere else in their community right um if they move and it's 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 a real big problem it's, it's a huge challenge um and it's it's yeah it's <laughs> goes the only real way to solve it is to sort of think about how do we solve our, our housing uh, the affordability crisis and it's a very complex and multifaceted problem but uh it's you know there are I think some some you know, track has our own ideas about what sort of solutions might might that might involve. Our guest is from Track, the Tenant Resource and Advisory Center. Lawyer Rob Peterson with us on a Sunday morning. Rob, thanks very much for getting up a little early on a weekend to uh, do a little work, and we do appreciate <laughs> your time and your your advice. It's uh, it's uh, it's an important time, and it's good to know where you stand. Absolutely, and I really appreciate you having me on.
things. Yesterday, we took a few minutes and had told you the story of Clio. We introduced you to its CEO, Jack Newton, and learned the story of this very successful British Columbia company. Well, today, it is our distinct pleasure to carry on talking about BC companies with guts and foresight. A small BC airline that got its operating certificate, of course, at the start of COVID-19, is still around. And now they're moving forward with passenger flights after operating essential services during the pandemic to survive. A real pleasure to welcome Jeremy Barrett to the program. Mr. Barrett is the president of Cascadia Airways. Jeremy, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. I mean, this is, again, this is a challenging story that you've got to tell. Going, Our friend Jack Newton, who uh, has this company that's now actually a unicorn, in other words, valued at a U.S. billion dollars, he started his company, Jeremy, in 2008 as the world financial collapse occurred. So, again, not exactly the best of timing. And here you go with your group of, of uh, investors and sympathizers with this plan and boom, along comes the pandemic. And so what did you do? I mean, you're still around. Tell us what that did to the game plan. Well, it definitely was a surprise to us and unanticipated. Uh, fortunately for us, we were still in the, in the growth stages and the beginning stages of the company. And therefore, we were able to maintain a small group of uh, individuals who are very committed and dedicated to having our small company succeed. So we were able to take that that uh, small group of people and uh, keep our costs down and our efficiencies high and uh, and keep going throughout the uh, the worst thing that could possibly happen in our industry. No kidding, eh? Talk to us about that game plan, Jeremy. When you sat down and came up with Cascadia Airways and the dream began to evolve, where were you going to take this? Uh, initially, our uh, goal was just to start with some uh, scheduled passenger services and uh, start doing some island uh, to the mainland flights. And uh, that was intended to start early in uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started with some charter services and uh, were uh, getting going with that and getting everything set up. And then as we were about to launch the scheduled services, the, the COVID pandemic hit, as did all of the uh, restrictions. So what we did at that time is we focused our energy on um, the communities and assisting them the best that we could and being available for essential services people and essential services uh, items that may need to be transported throughout the province. And so you you were able to provide essential services and transportation to places, remote places like Haida Gwaii and, and, and so on, correct? Correct. Actually, we did quite a few trips up to the Haida Gwaii area and uh, throughout uh, some other parts of BC Terrace, for example, and throughout the island. So now, were these uh, were these medical emergencies in some cases, or, or uh, again, you said they were essential? And during a pandemic, it's not just a going home to see grandma for the weekend, is it? No, that's correct. Um, most of the services that we were providing were, were for essential services personnel. Mm-hmm. And those people, some of them were, were going to work and some of them were uh, going up to uh, working clinics. Um, basically, once the uh, major airlines shut down services to these places, they uh, had very restrictive um, ability to get people in and out of these 
areas. So uh, Cascadia Air was one of the companies that had special permissions, for example, in Haida Gwaii to continue transporting people into that area. Aha. Uh, By the way, got to go back to the name, a very popular theme in this corner of Canada, uh, unknown to Canadians elsewhere in the country. But why did you pick Cascadia, Jeremy? Well, again, like you say, it's a popular area uh, the Cascade and Cascadia Mountains is where the the name came to be. Mm-hmm, sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, just through a little bit of uh, research and and that, uh, we decided that this would be a a great name to uh, promote the uh, area, the mountains, and the beautiful scenery around BC. And where's home base? Uh, you're flying out of, and this includes now the new regularly scheduled passenger flights, albeit on smaller aircraft, but uh, flying to Penticton, for example. That's the most recent announcement. Uh, you're flying there to Penticton from the South Terminal at the Vancouver Airport. Uh, is that home base for the airline then? Our home base is based in uh, Campbell River, so we uh, have been operating out of the Campbell Airport, Campbell River Airport now uh, since uh, we did start. Our new introduction to the Vancouver South Terminal, which uh, basically launched at the beginning of this month, included direct flights from Campbell River to the uh, the South Terminal. And from the South Terminal, we had direct flights to Penticton and uh uh, Tofino with seasonal routes. Right, okay. So you've been able to fly tourists, uh, and it's been a busy summer, and thank goodness for that over in Tofino. Uh, they've been having great difficulties finding enough staff to take care of all the visitors. So you, you've you been flying through the summer from uh, YVR South over to Tofino? Yeah, that's correct. And we're going to continue service to uh, Tofino until uh, at least the end of September. And also, uh, we have now launched our commuter program where we're actually able to take people from the Vancouver South Terminal to uh, the lower mainland airports such as Pitt Meadows, Abbotsford, and Chilliwack. Uh, so that commuter program now allows people to go uh, you know, over to the South Terminal or back out to these low-lying areas in a matter of a 15-minute flight versus a two-hour drive. Ah, so you could fly in from uh, Campbell River to the South Terminal and grab a, a short hop out to um, Abbotsford, for example, to pick up a flight to Toronto. Absolutely. Ah, so yeah, you're, you're being the middleman in that, so just filling in that transportation gap, right? Absolutely. We're flying to a lot of the small airports that the larger carriers can't get into, and therefore we are providing that uh that connection, whether it's a connecting connecting flight to another airline or a connecting flight to one of our others, or even just the business people who need to get in and get downtown quickly and, and can do it all in a day. Mm-hmm. Small BC commuter startup Cascadia Air has announced non-stop scheduled flights between Vancouver International, YVR South, and Penticton as it expands into the British Columbia interior with plans to introduce more service routes in the next year. Its president is Jeremy Barrett. Mr. Barrett joining us today to talk about his airline started minutes after COVID-19 arrived a few uh, year and a half ago. Jeremy, let's talk about COVID and and not only did it inhibit the dream in terms of Cascadia Air and cause you amongst um, pretty much every other enterprise in the province to have to pivot to survive, and you found ways to do that. Uh, let's talk about uh, COVID and how it's uh, and those inhibitions, because again, here in BC, as you well know, tomorrow, September thirteenth, there's a new round of public health protocols, and masking is a big part of that, uh, and of course, transport and transit is affected. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that uh, we did is uh, 
you know, as a regulated industry is to ensure our compliance with Transport Canada and, and all of the mandates that uh, the, the federal government had put out in place for the airlines to follow. Uh, furthermore to that, we were making sure that our aircraft were sanitized after each flight mm-hmm. and uh, making sure, you know, they were wiped down because the last thing we wanted to do was to, you know, be a potential spreader um, of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, so our aircraft have been maintained uh, as soon as possible. Plus, we uh, created uh, a little bit more room in there by by bringing our seating capacity down, just to allow for a little more social distancing. And uh, we've successfully been able to uh, continue uh, that so far with no issues. And uh, in terms of passenger cooperation, I mean, you're you're operating relatively small aircraft, so it's a pretty small group to whip into shape each time you fly and go through the routine and all of that. But uh, have you encountered any resistance? Uh, We have not. Everybody's been uh, very good. And I think because we are on smaller aircraft, we do have the ability to intermingle with all of our customers. Sure. It's very personal, more of a personal kind of a basis, and they get they we know a lot of our customers by first name. We have a lot of people that fly with us on a regular basis, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's more like a family than it is a business in a lot of respects. And uh, you know, we respect the rules, and uh, you know, so do our passengers, and we just make sure that uh, you know we're all we're all there to to keep everybody healthy. And it's interesting that you've chosen Penticton as the first place to begin regularly scheduled flights because the folks up in Penticton are really happy to have you, Jeremy. And among other things, they're saying it's really important for the business of their airport. They're not the largest airport in Canada. We know that. But they value their airport, and it's important to keep it open. So your company arriving with more regularly scheduled flights is perfect for them. Yes, um, compared to uh, just up the street from them, obviously they uh, they have a lot more of the the major traffic that does go into the uh, Kelowna Airport. Sure, yeah, and Tickton also does have some of the the, um, the majors flying in there, but it's much less capacity. Uh, where we want to go with Penticton is um, is kind of have Penticton as our gateway to the Okanagan. So when we expand our routes in the Okanagan, where we also want to do our commuter routes into the Okanagan, such as we're doing in the Lower Mainland. So the people who uh, would like to fly from Vernon and connect, for example, we can fly to Vernon and bring them down to Penticton mm-hmm. or from Asoyus up. So it, it, it's opening up a lot of partnerships that we're looking for in terms of destination travel. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, as you're saying this, I met a new colleague of mine recently on the phone, and she's just moved to her new assignment with our our company from Edmonton, and she's, for some mysterious reason, based in Summerland and and is quite happily ensconced there, just getting used to the area, but was saying on the phone, you know, I'm going to, I'll meet you soon because we'll be coming down to Vancouver for the all-important meetings every now and then. So again, with COVID and the changes that it has brought about, including so many millions of us now working, however, temporarily from home, Jeremy, uh, that's created a a whole new class of flying client, hasn't it? Absolutely. And um, in respect to that, I think a lot of people, because the the airline uh, traveling has been reduced, albeit it has improved dramatically in the last uh, month or so. True. Um, a lot of our, our passengers tend to fly with us. They're actually excited that they get on our plane, and there's only one, two, or three passengers. Mm-hmm. So 
really where where uh, our levels of exposures are a lot uh, decreased compared to the uh, the potential on some of the aircraft that have you know 300 passengers for example mm-hmm. so a lot of people feel like our service that they're getting is a lot of times like a private flight and, and to them that's actually very exciting i can imagine it would be so talk to us about expansion plans cascadia airways has uh, by hook or by crook managed to pretty much survive COVID-19 not that we're out of the woods yet Jeremy but I think we can see the light at the end of the tunnel and that allows at least a couple of deep breaths to be taken and more contemplation time of the expansion agenda what do you, what's, what's on the table well, we've definitely had lots of time for contemplation. <laughs> Maybe too much, huh? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but we do uh, want to expand our services, and our, our primary goal right now is is to focus on what we have, and we want to be able to build some volume and get our, our passenger capacities up um, so um, then we can start looking at different aircraft and different routes. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we would like to look at... Uh, some slightly larger aircraft, especially uh, once we're doing the mountain flying. And uh, we'd also like to look at expanding our routes uh, throughout Vancouver Island and making sure that we're servicing more than just uh, Campbell River. Uh, We currently are the only airline that's actually flying from the Abbotsford Airport over to the island. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Expand that to uh, other destinations for sure. Okay, and uh, in terms of aircraft and and knowing when the right time to move up to a larger passenger capacity aircraft, the the marketplace will tell you that in its own way, won't it? Absolutely. I mean, at the moment, like you said, when we're only moving two to three passengers on the average flight, uh, that's indicative that now is not the time to go out and and make major purchases on larger aircraft. But we feel that that time is coming, and. Uh, you know, if we can be sold out all the time, I mean, that's almost a good problem to have. Yeah. However, you know, that, that like you said, will show us that now is the time to, to get into some larger aircraft. And then we can start using our smaller aircraft on maybe the, left, the, the less uh, busy routes. And then we can use appropriate aircraft and seating capacities for what's needed at the time. And I guess a big part of all of this is getting the word out, getting the brand to become more familiar with people, getting Cascadia Airways to become considered as an option, particularly for short hops around around the province and such. Uh, I would assume the advertising and brand awareness stuff is still to come based on the fact that still not many of us are flying. Yeah, that is coming, and we do have people working hard for uh, brand recognition and to get that out there. And we are in a very competitive space, sure. and and so and that's you know for the reason why we're going to try and stay in our own backyard, and we're going to try and uh, service you know the places that other people aren't going. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, we can all complement and help out each other without stepping on too many toes because it is a competitive industry. Indeed it is. Well, Jeremy, we appreciate your time on a Sunday morning to tell us more about Cascadia Airways. It's a great story. Your persistence and courage in the face of trying to launch this thing into a pandemic is commendable. So we must wish you considerable success going forward. Great. Thank you very much. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
more stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.